you hear us through your AirPods or see us on your laptop, how about meeting us in real life? Because we're taking Queer Money on the road this summer and fall. Visit QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player to find out when we'll be in your neighborhood. If you've heard of the app kid and his success with his Club Penguin Cheats and Forsnap apps, then being hired as the youngest person at Facebook at age 17, you might have thought, wow, this kid has got it all going on. But truth is often far from perception. Michael was born to Peruvian and Bolivian immigrants who struggled with money, keeping the restaurant open, as well as keeping a roof over their heads. The weight of the family's finances rested on Michael's success with building apps, and Michael's physical and mental health ended up suffering. Michael joins us today to share his success story, and in the mix of all this chaos, realizing that he was gay. You're listening to Queer Money, episode 344, and today we're talking about success, money, and mental health with tech entrepreneur, 26-year-old Michael Saman. Stay tuned until the end to learn how you can qualify to win a free copy of Michael's book, The App Kid, and now on to the show. You're listening to the Queer Money Podcast, personal finance with a rainbow twist. Queer Money is dedicated to financial independence, financial well-being, investing knowledge, and the intersection of all things money as an LGBTQ person. Queer Money is made possible by Capital One. Capital One believes that financial well-being includes your mental, physical, and financial health. Check out CapitalOne.com today. Welcome, Michael Salmon, the app kid to the Queer Money Podcast. We're excited to have you. (laughs) Thank you so much. I'm glad to be here. I'm probably mostly excited with the fact that you're here because I can't tell you how many millions and millions and millions of dollars my husband would have made had he executed on even half the apps that he came up with. (laughs) I don't even know what cut came up with, just the (laughs) ideas that come to your head. We should try this or there should be this app. We should do this thing. But um, unlike you, he failed at the execution part of that. (laughs) I I was going to say, I have the opposite problem. I I can't come up with any good ideas. I I can code, but that's about it. So, (laughs) Got you right. Right. So like I said, before the start of this interview, I was really, I was familiar with you as the app kid, but I was not quite prepared in reading your story at how much money was going to be woven throughout almost every facet of your your experience and and your life. I, I just found that very... Very, very profound. So I'm curious. I'll start off the interview with: What are your thoughts and feelings about money? What kind of when you when you think about money? What kind of energy do you would you say that you you, you vibrate? Unfortunately, I think money. It's almost like the necessary like key to freedom. That's what I associated with money since I was a kid. Like that's how I associated it. I always thought of it as like a necessary thing to achieve to have the freedom to do what I want in my life. So I don't like it because it, you know, creates weird situations between families and friends and all kinds of stuff. But it's an aspect of our society. It's just the way our world works. And for better or worse, it is what it is. So in order to have the freedom or the pleasure to be able to choose what I want to do in my life and and not have to feel stressed or worried, then I had to make sure it was a priority for me to have that stability. Right. And you're you're sort of a 
you're the archetype of the successful American dream, right? Like you're the the first generation, the child of immigrants who came to the United States to try to build a better life for their children. And here you are probably couldn't be any more successful than in the type of industry that you're in than you are today. So you're, you're a byproduct of the very success that I think that your parents are probably looking for, right? Yes. In many ways, yes. In other ways, it's it's hard because there are aspects of my career that I would say seem successful. But in reality of the apps that I built, and if you take apart any one particular moment in my career, none of them on their own seem like successes. They all kind of seem like half successes, mostly failures. But like the, the I guess the collection of it all seems like, okay, success, right? And so at, at no point in any part of my growth and career, whatever, did I think I was succeeding. I, I always thought I was like about to fall apart. Like I was like, this is the moment where I'm, I'm going to get caught, right? Like yeah. this is the moment where it's over. And my family, I guess, did see it as a success. They did feel happy about it, but it was also weirdly tense, right? Because I think in, a, in an ideal world, I would have had this kind of success once I went to college and left the house and built up my life and my family had their thing. And then I would be able to come back home and, and talk about what I've done with my career. But instead, this happened when I was like 13. So my parents mm -hmm. were like, wait, hold up. You can't make decisions of what we're doing. And I'm like, yes, I can. I make the money. And they're like, wait, but like, we manage the money. And I'm like, well, you shouldn't because you're not good at it. And they're like, wait, but, but like, yes, we are. We're the parents. What do you know? And I'm like, I don't know. I just Googled it. And they're like, yeah, well, everyone's going to now want to Google what should my parents be doing with my money? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and I'm not like, I'm, I'm sure I could find Google history from when I was 13. There's so many things I looked up like that. It's hilarious. <laughs> That's awesome. When I did think, I, I was really surprised. I, I think it was, it might might even have been in the epilogue, but, but but at least by chapter one, you told the story of how you started to succeed with Club Penguin cheats. It was all of a sudden getting traction. You were starting to make money. But I thought it was really interesting at how one of your first thoughts was, oh, this isn't gonna, this isn't gonna last. What do I have to do to 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 to, to yeah. continue to iterate and improve things? And you sort of touched on that in your last answer that you sort of just were just waiting for everybody to sort of realize the truth or for you to, to completely crumble. I'm curious. In retrospect, it's a definition of imposter syndrome. How, how do you think you sort of acquired that imposter syndrome at such a young age, especially since you did something so like unique and cool and had such unexpected success from it? I guess it was more calculated than I let on when I was a kid. Like I like yes, like it was like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know it was gonna work out as well as it did, but I was intentional about it. So I knew that I was building this app that was going to be this cheats app that was going to be a reference guide for this game I loved. And I knew that was going to do well, but I also knew that eventually there would be other apps out there that would compete. I knew it was early in the app store market in the timing. And so I felt like it was a little window of opportunity that I had to really take advantage of. So the moment that the app started doing well, I started tracking every day how the sales were going. And I noticed that there was this curve and I started to see the trajectory even when it was doing well. So I kind of had my little prediction model in my computer of where we were headed. And, and so I had to try and figure out how to reinvent, you know, what I had already done with success and, and try and take that success I got from that first app and, and use every bit of it that I could, connections or interviews or whatever I did at that point 
to try and give myself the best chance of success in the next hurdle, because the next ones were going to be harder and more competition on the app store and, and so on. And so I think, yeah, I think the paranoia and the fear and the imposter syndrome and all that personality trait kind of helped me rather than hurt me when it came to all that stuff. Um, mm-hmm. In other aspects of life, I don't know, but in that one, for sure, it, it was good. It was good. It's interesting you're, you're talking from kind of the tech perspective. Right. You know, there are lots of other businesses that once they reach success, there's a much longer maturation level, right? It takes much longer for a company like Target or Amazon or Walmart for their business to be taken over by another competitor. Whereas in technology, that literally can happen almost overnight. Yeah. Right. So you had that kind of facing you, which kind of makes you always be looking in the rearview mirror, right? Who's coming up behind me? Who's coming up behind me? Who's coming up behind me? You feel like you're on a road race. Yeah, like when you have investors investing in companies and asking like, oh, I'd love to try the beta version of what you're working on. I'd love to see what's the new thing. They're sending it out to all the people that they're investing in that are other developers and see who can build it faster and if we can get 10 versions of it and who's going to build, they're hedging their bets, right? Like, and, and the acquisition market is so fast. There'll be an app that blows up after maybe like 30 days. And then 30 days after that, they're negotiating with Facebook to get acquired. And then two months later, the deal's closed and, you know, $100 million in a sale for an app that didn't exist six months prior. And then of course, you know, it gets acquired. Two months later, the app doesn't exist. Nobody uses it. And then it gets dissolved. And and that cycle is just so fast that you have to be careful, right? You have to figure out how to how to come up with the right idea, but time it well and and really push yourself as, as fast as you can to get to the end of it. So, I mean, it's it's an interesting game. Personally, I think it's exciting, but it's also exhausting. And like I said earlier, to me, the money thing is more like a means to an end and the end being the financial freedom to do what I want rather than like the end goal itself. So it's fun as a game when you think of it as a means to an end rather than the other way around. Because if you're too focused on absolutely succeeding, you could go crazy just trying to you know make an app work given how fast-paced it is. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because, you know, we coach people to make changes in their life, to improve themselves financially. We have this podcast to encourage more queer folks to to think about how finances affect their lives. And and we talk about financial freedom or especially for folks in the queer community, financial stability. And sometimes those processes take a long time, right? If you're paying off tens of thousands of dollars in student loan debt or hundreds of thousands of dollars in credit card debt or things like that, or you want to get to a certain level, that takes a long time. Gamifying it is one of the best ways to keep yourself motivated and doing, to keep going and keep uh, iterating and changing and seeing how I can do this better. We have to do the same thing with our finances. It's what you're talking about doing with with, uh, the Yes, with the apps. And I will say though, like, one important aspect for me of being able to even think about money is thinking in the long term. Like, I think it's really hard to think about the value of money in the short term beyond like things you want to buy that you can't have. Because I think most people don't want like a bunch of fancy stuff. So like most people will reason about, oh, well, I don't need a lot of money because I don't really want to buy that big expensive thing. I don't care. I'm happy living my life how I am. But when you start thinking in the long term and you think like, okay, what about 20, 30 years from now? What about my parents? How can I help? You know, what in case of an emergency, my siblings, maybe they need money. Maybe, you know, if I have a family, how much is that going to cost? What is college like? So when you think longer term like that, then you start realizing, okay, 
how many years do I really have to get that kind of money that I'm going to need to be able to do those things without worrying? And so it's almost like pre-planning is kind of required to have an interest in, you know, in, in wanting to generate, you know, some level of financial stability beyond the short term. You know, unless you want really expensive stuff in the short term, at which case, then the case to make money is easy. But I don't know. <laughs> I would say that. I think you have to admit it. You listen to the Queer Money podcast. Yeah. Really don't <laughs> Capital One strives to inspire a better financial path for everyone, including the LGBTQ plus community through access to credit, tools to manage debt and product features. Digital products such as CreditWise and Eno are designed to take the stress out of money by helping you manage credit, a key source of potential stress, and stay on top of spending without worrying all the time. Sign up for CreditWise for free today. It's interesting what, what you're what you're talking about it for a lot of folks is this idea of delayed gratification, right? We live in such an instant gratification yeah. world. I mean, the buy now button is pushed yeah. in front of our faces so much that it literally is driving yeah. people into financial yes. ruin. You know, you talked about the acrimonious relationship that you had with your parents, specifically around money. And that you guys, you two have somewhat similar stories in that when you first came into the world, you were both somewhat financially stable and secure and your parents didn't, didn't yeah, yeah. You, you didn't lack for it a whole lot. But then, you know, David had his own experience. You, your, fa your family had the 2008 housing crisis. And so all of a sudden, all your spending had to be reined in significantly. And it sounds like from your story that your, your parents struggled to adapt with that reasonably. So I think lots, lots of folks would have, have, have trouble with that. Yeah. But I thought it was interesting that you, as you alluded to earlier, you kind of almost were more fiscally responsible than your parents. So, <laughs> I, and which is weird for a 13 year old or even at your age now. Where did you get that knowledge? What, what, how did you know that what your parents were trying to do wasn't necessarily correct for you or for them? Well, I guess I think it, this applies to all people that when you're younger, it's easier to learn new things, different things than when you're older. You're more malleable, right? Things, habits aren't formed yet and traditions haven't been established. And so if I grow up in an environment where every time I turn on the TV, they're talking about what went wrong in the financial uh, markets, what went wrong in the real estate market, what went wrong you know, with the automobile industry and the bailouts and so on and so and And this is the constant conversation on my TV when I'm a kid. That's a very different world than, for example, my mom growing up with parents who didn't tell her anything about what was happening in the economy, didn't tell her at all what was happening because in their world, my mom was the woman. And in the world back then, it was like, because she's a woman, she doesn't need to know about what's going on with finances. She doesn't need to know, you know, what's happening in the world politically. She just needs to marry a rich guy, right? Like, that's like the extent so of... Right. So like I tried that path. I didn't marry a rich guy. You know, <laughs> my mom didn't marry a rich guy. So she, she was like, oh, God, like now what do I do? And she learned like she little by little learned how to get her own job, learn how to do her thing. But at the same time, there's so many years of not being used to being in that position that it's a lot harder to change. Whereas for me, it was almost the opposite case. Right. Like I was thrown into that position from childhood. So of course, I would over time develop a more natural instinct to what to do with like credit cards and like what a 401k is and, you know, how to file your taxes because 
my parents grew up without having to know a lot of those things. And I grew up having to figure it out without anyone telling me. So I, I almost had to do the work extra, right? To, to, to figure that out. And so it's not, yeah. So it's, I don't think it's any one ability. It's more of a circumstance. Right. So I'm curious, minus your career success, would you say a lot of your peers when you were growing up have similar financial knowledge? I would say it depends on the family that they grew up in more so than like the country, right? Because there are people who grow up with families who struggle and those who don't. A lot of my friends who grew up with stable financial houses actually don't know much about finances. And mm -hmm. part of the reason is, well, they didn't have to worry about it. They learned about it later on and some of their parents will teach them. But there's so many factors in it that like if your parents are well off, uh, but they don't teach you anything, then you don't know. And if they're well off, but they do, then maybe you do know. But if they're not well off and you have access to the internet, maybe you are a curious kid and you look up how to do this stuff, then you do know. Or, you know, if never got a chance to learn because you didn't have enough to go to a good educated school or whatever, and your parents didn't know either. So there's really all kinds of combinations. And I guess it really just depends on the family or the person that it is, right? For sure. Right. Yeah, it, it's interesting. There are lots of different paths you can go down. But for yours specifically, being forced into that kind of situation, did you feel like you had to grow up too fast? In some ways, yes. I feel like a lot of people in the gay community definitely feel this way, <laughs> that we had to grow up too fast. But oh, wait, you're yes, gay? no, I wouldn't call it grow up too fast. I would call it skipping the like skipping eras of my life, right? Because like it, it was it wasn't on fast forward. It's not like I got to do all those things really quickly and then get to the end. It almost felt like I jumped over all the parts of my life where I had to socially develop or had to learn how to do stuff or had to ask questions or learn how to drink or learn how to pretty much do anything and just go right into I'm a 34 year old man trying to like keep a family of four, you know, in a stable situation and so and so. So, so that jump kind of led me later on in life to try and relive my childhood and do it all over again and try and take part in the moments of my life that I didn't get to do when I was younger, right? So I, I don't know. I would say it's kind of like I just rearranged all the different steps in a typical life and now I'm just trying to figure out how to piece them together. I did think that was interesting in your story. I listened to it on Audible. I could hear the the financial stress that you were under, knowing that, you know, the, the, the ups and downs you were having with your various apps and knowing that your parents were relying on you to a certain degree. And here you are, this 13, 15, 18 year old kid. I think you're out by 17, but you're this young kid sitting at, at your desk eating unhealthy food, McDonald's three times a day yeah. because you felt this stress to take care of your family. So you you mentioned it that you kind of when you got older you finally went back and and lived your youth again or lived yes. parts of your youth that maybe those of us got to experience on a yeah, normal exactly, trajectory. Yeah. How has that been? Sometimes that can be very negative, especially for LGBTQ uh -huh, yeah. folks. Has that been positive or, or negative for you? I think it's been pretty good. It's definitely not as nice because when you're growing up with everyone else that's your age, you're kind of learning things together. So I think for the, in general, the gay community does miss out on a lot of the first, you know, romances and the dances and things like that. You know, we all had to grow up kind of skipping that part and then redoing it later. But the crazy thing is, at least, you know, 
you'll grow up with other people, you'll find other people who are gay who went through the same thing, and you'll go through that similar growth together. Right. Maybe, you know, in your 20s and 30s instead of your teens, but it, it happens, right? I think in, in my case, with the finances, it was something similar to that, where I guess my childhood is kind of rearranged. And so when I try to live those moments again, I'm doing so with friends of mine who are kind of past that phase. So for them, it's like, okay, well, now I don't want to do those things anymore. Or, you know, now I want to figure out how to be financially stable. And I'm like, oh, I'm past that. Now I want to just like do something silly or be spontaneous. And they're like, no, I don't, I don't want to be spontaneous. Right? So, so then you got to figure out like, do you hang out with people your age or people in your life stage? Right. And then you, and then you figure out that neither one has all the things related, right? Because people in my life stage, are like in their late 30s. And so then they don't want to do some of the things I do, but they have the same financial means that I do. And then maybe people that are my age want to do similar things, but they're in a totally different life stage. So it doesn't work, right? They don't have the same financial freedom maybe or whatever. So I don't know. I, I get the sense that it's just really hard to relate a lot of times because of the weirdness of it all. But either way, like it's not uncommon. We all have things that we don't relate to everybody on. And then that's just kind of life, right? Like you just got to have a bunch of friends that are in different stages and hang out with people who like to do things that you like to do and kind of go at it that way. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, that makes sense. It seems like, at least from your book, that b- being gay wasn't really a, a, a big concern or a big factor in your life until you were over the age of 18 and out on, out on your own oh, yeah. for the most part. Um, yeah. did, you, did you have any idea when you I mean it sounds like from your book that you didn't but I just want to clarify you had no well, idea when you were younger that you were were gay it was like I didn't understand that what I was feeling was the early signs of being gay it was almost like I definitely had things right like I'll watch high school musical and I'll be looking at Zach Afron's hair not looking at Vanessa Hudgens at all like so whatever <laughs> but in my Me head too. I was like I must be looking at him because I want to like be like him or I want like I didn't think about why right and of course I think like there's a lot of denial in one's head when they're younger and you just explain it away so for me when I was a kid I was explaining it away I would tell myself oh you know the reason I'm not into girls is because I'm still overweight and I need to lose weight was what I would tell myself right oh it's because I'm eating McDonald's and I'm I'm just too overweight and I need to stop that was like my thought right and then I was like wait no let me lose weight first. So then I lose weight. I go on a date, still doesn't work. I'm like, hmm, maybe I just need to lose more weight. And I'm like, you know, like just, it's like illogical, right? But it's obviously when it's coming from your perspective, you still believe it. So I would say I was in that state of coming up with excuses until I was like 18 or 19. And then at that point I was like, okay, I tried everything. Let me maybe just go on a date with a guy and see if this works. And I kind of knew it would. So, yeah. 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 <laughs> so, you know, it, it, was, this, it was interesting that your life stage when you finally came out was considerably later than I think than, than lots of people yeah. when they when they come out. And so were you in your book, you, you, you were quoted as saying no one would you were concerned that no one would take you seriously if they found out that you were gay. So I'm curious, I have two questions about that. One, were you more concerned about what the public would think and, and your career success, the trajectory that would go? than what your parents or your family and friends might think? Yeah, well, once once I got to the point where I realized that I was gay, and this was 18, 19 or so, that's when I had to figure out 
am I going to tell people or not? And my mom was telling me, don't do it. They're not going to take you seriously. No one's going to want, you know, they're going to cancel your book deal. They were just stuff, right? My mom was scared for me, right? Because naturally she grew up in an environment that would have probably reacted that way to her had that been her situation or had I been born in her era or in her country, right? Like if I was living in Peru, maybe it would have been different. And so I tried to explain to my mom, like, I'm not sure. I think this might be different. But at the same time, she's my mom. And and I'm like, okay, she must know something, right? So I'm like, okay, maybe I should be careful. Maybe I shouldn't say anything. And And we kind of talked about it for a while, but it was never something where I had a very strong opinion that I wanted to tell people. And she was like, no, don't tell people. It was like, it was like both of us were unsure because I trusted her opinion. And mm-hmm. her opinion was obviously biased to her experience. But I had to learn that by taking the leap and just saying, you know what, I'm in a situation now where if the worst case scenario, if I do get everything in my career canceled or whatever, like, I'll be okay. Like I prepared for this. I just mm-hmm. told myself, right. And, and really, I think that's kind of the, the, the situation I put myself in always, I was always scared of losing things. And I always felt like I needed to find a way to have the most stability, whether it's financial or otherwise. And so even my entire career, I built it up that way so that when I did have to make the decision of whether or not to tell people, I was not afraid that I would be in a situation that put me in danger. So a lot of kids these days ask, like, should I just come out and tell my parents? But their parents maybe are in control of their entire lives and they're fully dependent on them. And their parents, they don't know if their parents are going to react positively. In in which case I would say, maybe do be a little cautious of them, right? Like, I don't know, like, you don't want to necessarily put yourself in a situation that might be worse for you, right? And so you know, I felt like I was lucky enough to be in a situation where if I told my parents and they didn't like it, it didn't matter. Like Mm -hmm. I would be okay. And of course, like when it came to telling the rest of the world, I felt that way too. And had I not, maybe I wouldn't have. Right. It's interesting. I've always looked at being in tech and especially for individuals who are able to do a lot of the design and development and work themselves don't necessarily have to engage with a lot of other people and can do it from a place of almost anonymity to a certain degree. Do you think that because your situation was so public, do you think it might have been different had yours not been as public? Right. So I, I think of, you know, that there's a there is a, a significant movement in the queer community of Lesbians in Tech, the organization Lesbian Lesbians Who Tech, and there's Queers in Tech. There's there's all these or, start out all these organizations that are encouraging young queer folks to get into into technology, and that anonymity as a protection. Do you think that because your story was so public, you didn't have that p- potential to have that anonymity? Yes, and like I guess, yeah. Well, like. Yes and no. Like I did feel like being more public actually felt like I was more protected in a sense. Like I feel like if I didn't have like all this stuff that happened with my career and and whatever, I would have been more scared to tell my family because if my family maybe would have been like, no, like, oh my gosh, they would have said something hurtful. They would have done something. So in a weird backwards kind of way, my relatives in South America were all open to hearing about it because they were like, oh, we saw it in the newspaper in our town and he's our family and they're talking about it and he's talking about it. And like, 
they haven't canceled him. Like he's still there. <laughs> They're like, what? <laughs> like, okay. So then the whole family has to come with to terms of like, you know, so he's gay, but like everyone's still cool with it. So, you know, maybe we need to rethink how we think about it. And and so a lot of that happened, I think, thanks to my situation being more public. If I had been in an anonymous situation, I think my family probably would have been able to get away with maybe being a little bit more harsh with me or something, right? So I don't know. It's hard to say. And it's hard to know what would have happened in a world that doesn't exist for me. So I, it's hard for me to, like, I guess, predict what would have happened had I not been in the situation I was. I will say it would have probably taken me longer to tell my family and so on because I would have been afraid. And I feel like I'm at least I feel lucky enough to live in a country and in a time when there's enough support for the gay community. Now, I'm not saying it's 100%, but it's enough support where I feel like someone is going to have my back if like I get into trouble. And that reality, I think, makes me feel more confident than, you know, had I been born in another time. Right. And so even if my family would have done something or, or they would have never wanted to speak to me or whatever, there's community that is public and out that I can rely on. And that I think I, I can't imagine what it would have been like had, you know, I not known anybody who was gay or I not known, you know, other people who were in my situation. It's interesting. I, I you know, folks I, who are listening, you know, I've, I've shared this before, but I didn't come out until I was 26 because I wasn't financially stable. I couldn't get away. I, you know, I grew up in a very deeply religious household. I knew I was going to lose my family, my immediate family, my my yep. group of friends, the church, everything. I was going to be out. And if I'm out on the outside, then I don't have any support from anyone else. You know, and I kind of feel like to a certain degree, you were making some calculations in your head too, kind of similar yes. along those lines of where of can I be at a safe place for me to be able to to come out? Right. And I think that's yes. the case for all of us. Where am I going to feel? When am I going to finally feel safe enough to tell somebody the truth? Yes, exactly. That's exactly how it feels. It's like, yeah. And a little bit of the calculation to, thing too, right? It's like, and I don't know if this is the case for the whole community, but I definitely felt this way where like, as you start getting older and you have to deal with that and not knowing how to express it, you start learning how to become very observant of everyone around you. And you start to develop skills of like, how to, I guess, basically live a lie, right? Like mm -hmm. that's your goal you have to figure that out. And, and then later on, you become very, very aware of everyone's gestures and mannerisms and tone and just so much that like, most people grow up and just it's just automatic, you know, it's just automatic. So the amount of pressure that we're on, just on top of everything else is like, I don't know, <laughs> it's, it's a, an interesting, different way of being. And I think that does give us a skill of like being better at marketing and being better at design, and being better at a bunch of things that I think a lot of people in the gay community are very proud of, right? <laughs> right. Yeah, that's part of our advantage, the queer advantage, which there's a book out that's going to be out soon talking about the queer advantage and how we can use that to our advantage yes. in situations, <laughs> financial and otherwise. Yes, definitely. So I, I hadn't thought about it until now. We just talked about it. But I mean, I don't know how accepting Bolivia and, and Peru are of the LGBTQ community, but with all that, I mean, those whole, both those countries tried to, as you tell in this story, tried to sort of adopt you as their own because of the success you had. So if all those eyes were watching you through your whole story, and then also finally seeing you coming out and how you're still being successful and not being canceled, 
I guess maybe there's an op- there there was an opportunity there for some reassessment of the LGBTQ community that they might not otherwise have had. That, yes, that's pretty yeah. inspiring. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because I guess I don't like to be in the situation where I'm in the driver's seat of a narrative or a story or anything. I kind of just want to be like maybe one data point of what happened. So like so like it's hard though because in the case of Peru for example, there aren't a lot of people who will come out as gay. And there aren't a lot of people that talk about it. So they have a lot of questions. And a lot of times they have questions that like, you know, someone in the US probably wouldn't ask because they maybe know a lot more people and they know what to ask, what not to ask. So that that has been the case for sure. But I don't take offense. If anything, it kind of excites me a little bit in that it's an opportunity to kind of, you know, just share my thoughts on it. I do think there's a little bit of pressure of like, because there's not a lot of people that have done it in South America and have come out like, the pressure on what I say could define a lot more about their perception of an entire community, mm-hmm. which is obviously not, I'm not representative of like in a generic broad way. So like I, I'm like more reserved in my thoughts in that sense. I tried to be very clear that like my point of view is just mine, you know, but you can only go to a certain point with that. So e- either way, I think it's interesting. And I, I would say that like, they've definitely come a long way like Peru and Bolivia have, it's like better than it was in the US, you know, a few decades ago, even, but it's still not, you know, at the same level that you would find here. I think recently, Cuba just voted to legalize same sex marriages, which yeah, is yesterday, two right days now. ago, right? Yeah, I went to a Cuban high school, and they haven't caught up yet. So like, you know, it's right. like, <laughs> we're trying to go backwards here. Right? Yeah. You know, yeah. <laughs> One of the advantages so, you have, and you're kind of subtly saying this is, that you don't have to be the group, the boots on the ground, waving the flag activist for the LGBT community, that there are lots of other ways to be an activist for the community. And sometimes people who are in places of attention just by the way that they talk or the things that they say or or their, become, their actions yeah. do much more than somebody who's out there raising their fist and waving a flag. Well, yes, I, I would say it's like, when you're in a position with like a lot of eyes on you and a spotlight and all of this, you don't really have a choice. Like your words influence the rest of it. And so, yes, I try to be more reserved in that regard because I don't want my words to then represent a whole group that I don't feel I have the experience to, you know, right. advocate for in that way. But then again, I do think like as you talk about like activism in general, for me, I guess. All I ever wanted was to be considered normal. Now, I am lucky enough to like, again, be in a time period where we've a lot of the the strongest hurdles that the community had to overcome in the beginning, even just being accepted as like people, right? Like <laughs> have in large part already kicked off, right? Those conversations were kicked off like decades ago. So I'm coming at it from a position of like, Gay marriage was, you know, approved by the Supreme Court before I graduated high school. Like I already had this idea in my head that it was much more normal. So now I'm like, okay, time to feel normal. And it's interesting. It's like every generation that grows up at a different stage of progress will have like a different idea of what they want the conversation to look like. And so for me, it was always like, I just want it, you know, I just want people to treat it like the color of my hair. Like it's just a thing. Which was yeah, blonde like at one time. 
it was it was blonde and then it <laughs> and then it turned into into this color whatever i don't even know i'm disappointed in my hair color but that's a separate i wish i could say blonde but that's it's not impossible yeah. to change it <laughs> a shame well i gotta be happy you know i gotta be happy with what i got but <laughs> so i'm curious about the contradiction of you being you know coming out and then also the you shared the story of when you when you met Tim Cook at one of Apple's revealings, and you had you got a picture taken with him, and yeah, I found yeah, the picture and online, and you just have like the the world's biggest grin next to him. Did that kind of inspire you at all to say like I could do whatever I want in this field because Tim so, Cook is clearly setting a path? Yes, yes, and no. Well, for one, I wasn't sure if Tim Cook was gay. I didn't even know. Like I was like, mm, I don't know. And then the other aspect of it though was. And I knew that there were a lot of very successful people that were gay too. And I guess the other aspect of it was I was worried about it from my community. Like in the United States, it was becoming more accepting. And Tim Cook was like, wow. But I remember when I went back home to Peru, all that my family would say about Tim Cook was, oh, is that the CEO of Apple? He's gay, right? And it's like, we're not talking about him being gay. And the conversation isn't about Tim Cook being gay. But they'll just bring that up. That's like what he's known as, right? And so like, I would start to freak out about that because I would be like, okay, like I know in the US, I, I might not have an issue, but in South America, am I just going to be known as like the gay engineer that, you know, made apps as a kid who's gay and that's this whole thing is that he's gay. And like, I was like, no, I don't want that to be known like that, right? Like there's so many more gay engineers that are better engineers than me anyway. And on top of that, like, it's just not an aspect that has anything to do with my coding. So like I was, I would get nervous. I didn't want that. So that was my fear. And I think like Tim Cook to me looked like a great example of like, you know, what it could be. Right. And I was just afraid, like, is Peru there yet or not? And mm -hmm. like, how can we get there? Right. I love that. So you've had a significant career at a, at a very young age, right? You were the app kid. You had a, you were the youngest employee at Facebook. You went to Google and you've, you were actually, you're, you're responsible for creating stories. Instagram stories. Was that With Instagram stories? Yeah. <laughs> I was a part of it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and I, Kevin Sisman wasn't a fan, but it's okay. <laughs> but I thought it was, you know, you talk about you, you're from a different generation. Every generation thinks about things differently. I didn't really fully understand that until you, you shared the anecdote how here you were 18 something years old at Facebook telling all these 30 something year old people like like they're archaic at this point already like why kids your gener your age weren't using Facebook to the same degree that they were because they created Facebook what 10 years ago or, or prior and now they were kind of they were just a whole well, different generation that was well, they was ready yeah, like, our community yeah and i i do think like part of the skill or i guess that what was it the gay advantage or whatever being like very self aware and also aware of everyone else's behaviors and, you know, like actions kind of lended a hand because I understood at that point that, you know, as you get older, what you want to do just naturally changes. So the bias that one would have in terms of a product that they want to build just naturally changes. And so someone who's in their 30s will come up with good ideas that in their head sound good because that's what their head now thinks is good. But if you would have asked that same person, 10 years ago, what they thought of their idea that they came up then, they probably wouldn't have liked it. So if you just eliminate the technological progress from generation to generation, and you just focus on the fact that they're at a different life stage, they wouldn't have 
liked the ideas that they came, they come up with today. So Zuckerberg, I think, was actually was crazy for me to think about, but I think it was kind of brilliant that he was willing to suspend his own ideas completely when he approached products for my generation and instead would just ask people like me, you know, what should we do? And looked at it with an open mind, even if I had no idea what I was talking about, right? <laughs> like he was still like, okay, sure, let's try. Uh, <laughs> it's very much like toy manufacturers, right? They get a group yeah. of kids in the room and they have the kids, they pour out all the toys and what what are the toys that the kids are attracted to and actually yes. play with? They know those are the ones that are going to sell well, right? Of course, of course. And so those are the ones that they go out and produce and, and, and put out there. They're kind of yes. similar if you... I mean, we know that the people with a lot of time on their hands are typically between the ages of 13 and 18. And they're the <laughs> ones who are using all of these apps, right? So yeah. build yeah, them that's, for them. That's pretty much it, yes. And it's it's interesting too, because it's like, there was a lot of conversations around what type of product we wouldn't want built or we would want built for our generation. And, and for me in particular, it was always like, how do we build something that's like exciting, helps people connect, but doesn't depress them, right? Like a lot of the conversations and surprisingly, it was like even talking about Instagram and why I was so adamant about stories was because I just, I would be honest with my coworkers and I'd say, look, like we don't want to post on Instagram. There's too much pressure. Like we have to look perfect. We have to use all these filters. None of us want that. It's stressful. That's why we're using other apps. That's why we're on Snapchat. That's why we're on apps where like the photo disappears. We don't want to feel the pressure anymore of what this app has done. And, you know, I talked about it like that. And, you know, anybody else would have been like, are you insane? You're going to get fired. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, I don't know. Like, I thought, you know, I was a little naive. Like, I read the posters on the walls and they said, you know, break things and don't be afraid to, like, say, you know, be bold or whatever. So I was like, okay, like, it says it on the wall. I might as well do it. <laughs> we didn't, like, you know, it. those are just, <laughs> you know, be like, no, Michael, like, those are just like, propaganda posters they don't actually mean <laughs> you should be like doing this and i was like okay well whatever i'm doing it and surprisingly it, it worked out i don't know how much of that was because i was a kid and people were like well you know he's a kid let's just you know let him do his thing but yeah part of it was definitely that but <laughs> i did it and it worked out so yeah that's awesome. And so the point I was getting at is that it sounds like you know you, you're sort of at that stage in your life and you've had the success that you've had. And now your your goal is to help people with their with more with their mental health and make sure you, you create products that can that well won't harm people. So do you mind extrapolating yeah. on, on that a little bit with what you're doing? Yeah. Now? So I mean, of course, you know, once the launch of stories was out, there was one big issue with it that I didn't like that I ultimately lost the battle for the debate on this one product decision, but it was basically, should we allow people to upload content from their camera rolls and photo library onto stories? And so stories, the whole purpose of stories was like, let's let people share more everyday moments. Let's not, you know, allow people to share just anything there because we already know what happened on Instagram for the main app. Um, it turned into a competition of who has the most face-tuned photo that doesn't look like it's face-tuned, right? Like that's a whole thing. And then now you have stories where maybe it's original content and it's just raw moments, right? And so, of course, Snapchat already did this. And I was like, this is like, we should just do it like that. But Instagram had a strong argument that if we allow people to upload content from their camera roll, uh, in addition to the raw moments, that then maybe we could get more people to use it and more influencers and we can get more content. And then you'll have more views and you'll want to use this instead of 
Snapchat. My argument was it doesn't matter. We can still grow bigger. You have a bigger audience. And if you don't have content from the camera roll, you'll never compete in this filter war where you offend, you know, like eventually get to this point where you don't, you don't even share what you want anymore because the bar to create anything that looks remotely good is so high that you'd rather not post at all. And so anyway, ultimately we ended up allowing content from the camera roll. And over time, we had a graph and it showed the percentage of content, the percentage of photos and videos posted on stories that were taken with the raw camera versus like the percentage that were taken from the camera roll, edited or filtered. And the percentage every day since launch would go down, 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 meaning the percentage of photos that were being shared raw was going down. And I was like, oh my God, here we go again. And of course, like over the first couple of years, it's not too big of a deal. But eventually you get to a point like we're at today, where posting on your story, you usually don't post as often as you did before. And if you do, you're more careful of what you put and uh, you try to add a filter to it. And if you don't add a filter, then maybe it's not good enough. And there's this, this pressure is, is now there as well. And so for me, I feel like we're at a point where a lot of the social networking apps that we have today are so focused on trying to optimize every little piece of it to work as flawlessly as possible that the bigger picture of like how do you just get people to connect in a healthy way is totally lost and now people like people used to go out to the beach to enjoy it and maybe they would take a camera and take one photo and that one photo would be like the one they put in an album and then during christmas time they open up the album and share it with the family and that's it Right. And then afterward, we had Facebook. And so you'd go to the beach, you take a bunch of photos with your friends that you were there, you enjoyed it. And then you'd upload them all to the album on Facebook and tag everyone. And everyone in college would look at the photos and they'd all like see what happened. And then eventually we got to Instagram and we introduced the like button. And now, you know, the people went to the beach instead because they wanted to take a photo to get likes. And now it's not, you're not going to the beach anymore because you wanted to. You're going to the beach now because you think that's going to get you likes. And so now you're you're creating content, creating memories for other people. You're not even mm -hmm. creating the memories for yourself. Right. You might hate what you're doing, but if you like how the photo came out, then you're happy. And it's like, really? <laughs> like, we're going to live like that, right? So, you know, now, now with TikTok, it's a whole other thing. With TikTok, we're at a point where it's like, you're literally going out there to the beach to create a video in the hopes that you get TikTok famous. So like now you're not even, you don't even care about your friends or what your friends think. You care about like, what does the TikTok trend care about, right? And and at that point, at a certain point, you ask yourself like, do people miss it? Like, do people miss going and doing things because they wanted to do them? And I think they do. I think a lot of people in my generation don't do things because they want to. They do them because other people are going to like that they did it. Right. And so I think that's a lot of the key to building something that's healthy for mental health and physical health. I, I don't know what the exact implementation is. And there's a lot of ideas that I have and different versions of it that I'm testing with every month. But eventually I'll stumble upon something. And if I get copied, if someone copies my idea and just implements it themselves and steals it, if Instagram, Facebook decides to copy it, I don't mind. I'm fine with it. Because at the at the end of the day, I'd rather have a solution to the problem that everyone's copying than no solution at all. I think it's interesting that you bring this up. David and I noticed it seems as if stories, 
that do better on Instagram are more produced than TikToks on t- videos on TikToks seem to be rougher. And when they're rougher, they're a little bit more successful. Yeah. There, there must be, is there something different in, in the algorithms or are they just completely different demographics of users? Well, there is a difference in that stories don't really have an algorithm. They do for ranking like the stories of your friends, but you as the user have to choose which story you're going to watch. And so every person feels the pressure to click on the story of the person, you know, who has the good content. Every person who's creating content feels the pressure to make stuff that continues building up their reputation on Instagram. Mm -hmm. And so that reputation buildup is so important that it leads you to making better content because it's ultimately a user choice. Yeah. On TikTok, there is no user input. You do not decide what you watch. The For You page uh, decides yeah. for you, right? Mm-hmm. So like, even if you follow people, TikTok's like, we don't care who you follow. Like, we're going to show you things that we want to watch. And so gotcha. as a creator, you don't have pressure as a creator to do anything else. You don't have pressure to do, to, to build a reputation because you just, every video is on its own. And the people who watch it are strangers. And, you know, TikTok as a pure algorithm can just decide what's interesting for every person. Right. That makes sense. It's not better. It's better in some ways, but it's right. not better for society. Overall. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, it's interesting you brought up this idea of people are living a life that's not for them. Yes. And that's one of the things that we talk about a lot when it comes to finances that a lot of people, I think that to a very large degree, the fashion industry and the name brands within the fashion industry are there because people are, well, there's always the saying to women especially, but I think that it really applies a lot to gay men too. You didn't buy those shoes for your husband. You actually bought them for your girlfriend, right? Because you want your girlfriends to see you in these shoes. And I think gay men, and it's, it's kind of the same way. We want, we want them to see that we've got these new fancy shoes or this bag or this, these clothes, these yeah. clothes. And, and we put ourselves in a financial situation because we are trying to make everyone out there happy because we want everybody to like us. Right. Yes. Right. And then we move, we just have now moved that liking us online mm-hmm. to yes, now I need to do all game. these things. Right. I have, yes. I have these pictures of me with, coach and Gucci and all these boxes piled up outside my front door. But the reality is, is the boxes are all empty, but I'm still trying to get people to like me so much because I want just want people to like me. Yes. Yes. It, it's interesting that inherently that it's I think there's a deep seated feeling within queer folks. And maybe you can express this as well, that we grow up with these concerns or these worries that people aren't going to like us. These people in my country are not going to like me because I'm going to be gay or people aren't going to, my family is not going to like me because I'm gay or, or, you know, I'm going to go to school. I'm going to go to this school and kids in school don't like me because I'm gay. And we kind of, do we have a heightened sense of this desire to please other people? And how is that affecting our mental health? Yeah, we definitely do. And I would say it's, maybe it's not, we care more, but it's like we're more careful when we try, right? So like other people will try to 
have, you know, others like them, but they'll do it in a way that didn't involve years of studying and observing everyone's mannerisms very carefully, right? Whereas like, you know, for gay people, it's like, okay, like, I'm going to try to get people like me, but I'm going to be very, very aware of every gesture and hand movement and everything. And and so like, yeah, there's a, a lot more detail in the way we try to do it. I would say that makes us better at design, makes us better at Facetune, makes us better at Photoshop makes us better at those things because we're more subtle in that regard. But we very much care and it's it's a problem. I, I think originally, I think there's a healthy amount of wanting to fit in that should exist. I think, you know, feeling like an outlier sometimes, that feeling of, you know, for example, if you have a crazy conspiracy theory and nobody else in your community has that conspiracy theory, like there's some healthiness to, you know, feeling a little bit like, hmm, maybe I shouldn't be thinking this crazy conspiracy. But when you have like an ability on the internet to have a score, a literal point score for how close you were to the average or not, or how close you were to the primary group of people you're trying to impress, that score is dangerous because if it directly increases the profit of a company, like then you can imagine where it leads. The same thing with the dating apps. If they profit off of people literally not finding a partner, like how does that end well? It's like, <laughs> Yeah, there's a couple of things like that that I think are dangerous. And that's why I'm not a fan of the like button. I actually don't like it. I, I I was talking about this with a few other folks too, where it's like, I don't think I can build an app that has a like button or a like score, right? Like I don't want anyone to have a score for how well they did on like making other people happy because it's mm-hmm. not about that. Like the goal is about making oneself happy and fulfilled and healthy. And yes, like I agree, this is in human nature. We want to buy the things because we want to fit in with people. We want people to like us. We want people to think we're cool. But the like score stuff is just dangerous. It's just extremely dangerous. Are you a fan of Black Mirror? I mentioned this (laughs) back on the capitalism episode. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You watch Black Mirror? Of course. Yeah, the episode with the ratings where you rate people based on the conversation you have with them. That's the way we live that, right? Right. That's the world we live in today. So. It really is. And and you can write your review on Twitter. You know, that's the, that's the way it works, right, these days. Right. So, so that's that's exactly where we're at. Right. They're all very exciting. I love it. This has been a great conversation. We could probably go on for hours, but we don't have that kind of time. What are you working <laughs> on now? What's next for you, Michael Saman? What's, what's, what's happening in your life, right? Yeah. So right now, I'm working on a couple of new apps, as I was saying. I've got the startup company called Friendly Apps, basically just building friendly apps for people friendly to their mental health, friendly to their physical health, They're trying to figure out ways to build social products that let us connect. Um, but like in the old, like viewing albums together in the holidays with the family kind of way, not in the, let me go to the beach to take a photo so I can get likes kind of way. And what else do I have? Maybe, I don't know yet. We're trying to figure out the final details, but the book might be getting turned into a series like a TV series. So that's oh, really kind of exciting. Very and cool. Yeah, that's that's pretty much it. I don't know who's going to play me. I don't know. And I'm like, you know, like, oh, <laughs> well, Zach and Efron's I get too old. nervous to even think. So I don't. <laughs> Zach Efron is never my, too old. Yeah. Oh, God. Oh. <laughs> the level awesome. of awareness I don't want to have about myself. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, yeah, I didn't think about it. But it, it in, in retrospect, I, I could definitely see it being interesting. <laughs> At least an interesting movie, if it's not a, if it's a short yeah, film series, yeah. It's a, yeah. for sure. Yeah. So with that, for some people can say abreast whether or not that becomes a, a movie or a TV show someday. Where all can our listeners keep up with you on social media, podcasts, the internet, whatever? Of course, yeah. On Facebook, on 
still on Facebook, you know? <laughs> on Instagram, on you know Snapchat, Twitter, it's all at Michael Sainan. So if you guys add me there, I'm happy to just chat about apps or whatever else. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for coming on the show. To our listeners, hang on to the end so you can find out how to get a free copy of Michael's book. Thank you and have a good week. Make sure to check out more ways that Capital One can help you achieve financial well-being at CapitalOne.com. That's CapitalOne.com. Thank you, Michael, for sharing your very personal story, including your money story. We know that our listeners will be inspired. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Career Money Podcast. Here's your Career Money takeaway from this episode. Go buy Michael's book, The App Kid. We only scratched the surface of his story here today. Then to have a chance to win a free copy of Michael's book, subscribe to the Career Money Podcast newsletter with the link in your podcast player. Then join us this Thursday to hear about two critical parts of a financial plan that many LGBTQ people are missing according to the Motley Fool, Defer Guy's LGBTQ plus money study. And then join us next Tuesday for a regular show when we talk with so gay motivational speaker, Ash Beckham. Thank you and have a great week. From Los Angeles, California to Winooski, Vermont, we're taking Queer Money on the road. Join us as we gamify personal finance with Queer Money Bingo or catch our signature Live Fabulously, Not Fabulously Broke Talk and so much more in between. Check out QueerMoneyPodcast.com forward slash tour or the link in your podcast player regularly for date and location updates.